how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters. Did Home Alone, Rowan John uses career, the greatest movie never made, and how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Originally, Aaron Snyder wanted to work for ILM, or Industrial Light and Magic, the visual effects company founded by George Lucas in 1975. While taking a special effects class, his peers told him everything was probably going to computers though, so he shifted his focus to cinematography. Soon he was working on music videos for Cypress Hill, then movies like Kiss the Girls and Simon Birch. In an effort to shift his career, he put his life savings into a short called Two Soldiers in 2003. The short actually won an Oscar in 2004 and made him a director. These days he's known for Get Low starring Bill Murray and Robert Duvall and Greyhound starring Tom Hanks. Get Low is somewhat of a folk tale about a Tennessee hermit and Greyhound is the true story of a U.S. Navy commander in World War II. In this interview, Schneider talks about discovering two soldiers as a short story, the romance of historical fiction, and how to get slow burn movies made today. I was two years into mechanical engineering degree at Iowa State University um, with an eye on an engineering career. And I flunked the test and realized I was miserable and decided to transfer into film school. Uh, because uh, when I really asked myself what I wanted to do, I thought, you know, I'd like to work at ILM and, and, and shoot models against green screen and all that kind of great stuff. And um, I took a special effects class when I went to SC, um, but everyone said it was gonna turn into computer work. And I was sort of a hammers and nails kind of guy. Like, and so at film school, I looked around at all the different sort of job descriptions and cinematography turned out to be sort of the hammers and nails of filmmaking, you know? Um, the director is moving things along creatively step by step, but at the end of the day, someone's got to set up the camera, set up the lights and bring all of that together physically, right? The movie's got to be handcrafted and that's, and the cinematographer is kind of at the forefront of that effort. And that really appealed to me. Um, it's a fun job. And so I started shooting everything I could during film school. And when I graduated, I put a reel together and, 
really kind of my first career I launched was in cinematography back in the sort of MTV music video days. And that was, that was my entry into cinematography. And then I, and then as I, you know, kind of matured in the business, I, I decided I, I had my own ideas, my own stories I wanted to tell. And that's when I threw my life savings into my short film, Two Soldiers, as a means of sort of creating a calling card for a shift towards directing. And um, that's the one that won the Oscar back in 2004. And that kind of shifted my career towards directing. What made you decide to uh, take such a big chance or risk on that particular story? That's a, that's a pretty awesome story, too. I'd seen Saving Private Ryan with my dad. Uh, on a birthday trip uh, up north, Northern California. And I had decided to make this film and that I wanted to adapt it. I wanted to find a short story to adapt. And I got home from that vacation and I went to the library and started walking the aisles to the anthology section. And, you know, where do you start? And so I looked up on the shelf and I saw this book and on the spine of it was the greatest World War II American short story. And having just seen uh, Saving Private Ryan, I said, hey, you know, maybe a, a war story for a short film. That could be interesting. And I pulled the book down. And as you're apt to do when you, you know, thumbing through a book, you're looking for a title page, a chapter, you know, it's a book full of short stories. And the first sort of title I happened upon when I was flipping through the book was Two Soldiers by William Faulkner. And I read the opening sentence, which described two farm boys eavesdropping on a neighbor's radio, uh, listening to and kind of entertaining themselves when suddenly the announcement of Pearl Harbor breaks in. And um, and I thought, this is this is incredible. And I read it. And by the end of it, I was sitting there in a puddle of my own tears. And I thought to myself is it possible that you can come in and like pull the first book off the first shelf and read the first story and like actually, you know, call it quits? You know, is that the way this works? And I read a few more stories and I just kept, and that's the way it happened. I, uh, I checked the book out. I went home and I started adapting it and it was just a story that really spoke to me and really moved me. And the whole point of the, choosing a short story to adapt was to know that I could see, I could see and feel the story on the page. I knew, you know, having been a first time screenwriter at that point, I knew that if I could see the story in my head from, from the book, from a, from a piece of source material that I could confidently uh, adapt it. And that's the way that went. Do you think, do you have a particular calling card for historic pieces like Get Lowe's in the 1930s? You just mentioned uh, your first film in Greyhounds, obviously World War II. What are some of the benefits of making these historical pieces? Uh, well, I think for me, like oddly, as, as crazy as it sounds, one of the first benefits of going back in time to tell a story is that you, uh, you know, there's an element of romance and and a bit of fantasy to it because it's not present day. Not to mention the fact that you don't have to deal with cell phones and iPhones and all the technology of the modern world that sort of gets written into the fabric of any screenplay as it inevitably has to. And, you know, people talk about how social media and 
and modern technology is sort of pulling us apart um, as people, as a society, right? So by definition, the further you go back in time, the more dependent we are on the good old fashioned spoken word, word and, and direct interaction with each other. And that's, I think, more conducive to interesting drama, you know, just from a logistical standpoint. Um, but then there's also the visual opportunities. Used to be, wasn't too long ago, period pieces were considered stodgy and kind of, you know, kind of, um, you know, just kind of uh, strangled a little bit. Um, but now we see all these wonderful new projects popping up where people are going into periods of time in the past and finding unique and visual ways of taking us back there. And, and, you know, as they say, a good movie should take you somewhere you've never been. And, you know, kind of the joy of going somewhere you've never been. And I think going back in time and exploring a period with different politics, with different you know, transportation, different ways of communicating, you know, that's just good cinema. Um, and, and plus the visual opportunities are, are huge. Where do you start with something like that? I and mean, obviously a lot of it's on the page, but where do you start to do some of the research? Do you work with someone, uh, maybe specifically for Greyhound? How did you kind of come to the look of the movie? Uh, well, the look of the movie was, was pretty well defined by the only surviving destroyer left uh, in the world, really, in its World War II configuration. You know, we're talking about something that's, you know, over 65 years old, 70 years old. Um, and um, the USS Kidd down in Louisiana is uh, one of the last, if not the only, World War II configured uh, museum ships left, Fletcher-class destroyer. And um, and so, you know, we, we obviously couldn't afford to build um, huge amounts of a destroyer for the movie. So we had to base it on something that would give us the details we needed. The film's, you know, very heavily biased towards, you know, the pilot house, the bridge workings of the story in and out of the pilot house, which is a set we built on a gimbal down in Louisiana and shot on a stage and then put the backgrounds in with visual effects. But when that needed to tie in to elements of the destroyer, we needed to tell the story, depth charges, you know, um, crew mounting the decks and the guns. Um, we had, you know, we had to find the real thing. So we, when we found the destroyer, we built our set to match and that gave us, and you know, when you combine all those together as separate elements, you know, the idea is that when you see the film, you get a sense of the whole ship. This might be more of a screenwriting question, but how do you, what are some of your thoughts on like getting a movie like Get Low or Greyhound made today? I mean, I feel like uh, the slow burn cinema is a little bit, maybe going towards television or something like that. Any advice about getting these types of movies made? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think I just saw an interview with Tom the other day. Uh, he was being interviewed for uh, News of the World, and I think he postulated that it's it's very possible News of the World could be one of the last adult dramas to ever see the theater, right? Um, there's a lot of people who think that um, those mid-budget uh, dramas 
as you know, regardless of how much spectacle or cinematic appeal they might have, um, are destined for the streaming world where the adult audience is. Um, as you know, superhero movies and, and other IP based kind of movies get made. And as the economics begin to make more sense, you know, it's like uh, the hat, you know, it's like just the economics of who is going to the theater and how much money it costs to put a movie there and market it as opposed to uh, the entertainment people are, you know, logging into Netflix to see it's, it's creating a sort of a bifurcated world um, where the cinema is all about, you know, massive budgets and massive spectacle where people are expecting uh, to see a movie that's, you know, that's basically built on spectacle Um, and everything else heads to streaming. So I don't know how, I think it's still evolving. I'm not sure how to answer your question, except to say that um, there's only a handful of studios really left that are pursuing the sort of independent film or moderate budget um, approach to getting uh, an adult movie into the theater. How did you guys go about, so I know this this came from a novel that, that Tom Hanks worked on in the screenplay, but how do you go about storyboarding some of the action scenes? Some of this reminded me of maybe the, the Brad Pitt movie Fury, where if you don't describe it exactly right, it's hard to tell how the tanks are fighting or, or hard to tell what's going on with the submarines and the ship. Like, how, how do you kind of go about that with storyboards and those type of things? Yeah, it's a good question, too, because um, even in a tank movie, the tank is on terra firma, right? It's on the ground, the enemy's in the trees, and the director can establish that very easily, visually. Uh, like, here's a tank driving this way on the ground, shooting this way, and then here's some bad guys over in, a, you know, in the tree line. And once the audience gets a sense of that relationship, um, you know, you're off to the races to give them a, you know, a really visceral scene um, from a direct directorial standpoint the, what's unique about greyhound is that there are no landmarks right the tank is floating in you know to, to, to sort of compare the two um, you're talking about a tank floating in water and there's no tree line and there's no terra firma it's just one big sort of blank canvas uh, sky in every direction so there's no there are no visual cues there's no backgrounds uh, to sort of help the audience understand here's where these guys are and here's where these guys are because no matter where you look it's water and horizon so geography becomes a real challenge uh, establishing geography and the relationships between ships and their bearings and their orientation to each other and you know we had to explore all kind of different ways of conveying that information to the audience um so mainly we relied on, you know, Tom's character, Krauss, as a focal point. The idea that he's, he, you know, he's sort of the linchpin at the center of this whole narrative. And if he stares out a window and we cut to what he's looking at, you know, the audience is inherently sort of connecting the trajectory of the ship to whatever they're sailing at. But then there were other circumstances when we needed to come outside of the ship and show some you know, show the orientation of the ship relative to 
to other ships. And then there, uh, towards the very end of post-production, it was determined that we needed, um, you know, to, to even get a little wider. And you'll notice there's some sort of bird's eye, uh, God's eye shots to establish a few geography and relationships. So that was the challenge as far as how storyboards came into play. You know, we did storyboard, we did previs, uh, but most importantly, the first previs we did was we mapped out bird's eye maps of the um, of each of these encounters, each of these battles, and there's you know at at real time and at real ship speeds, so that at any given point, uh, while you know I was standing on the bridge with the actors and Tom, I would gather everyone around the iPad and say, okay, everyone have a look at what this engagement, this naval engagement looks like from above, because when we're done watching this video, I'm going to put little LED lights out where every, all these ships are. And sometimes, you know, I'm going to have one LED that represents the ship before you turn and one LED that represents the ship's position after you turn. And you're going to have to, you know, connect the dots with your eyes from the first LED to the second. And you can imagine how complex that gets over time and over every shot in the movie. I mean, this was this this was the approach for every single day of photography. Um, and if and, and and I knew from the start that if there wasn't a master plan, if there wasn't a overhead map that defined positions and engagements for every department, not just me directing on the set, but later on visual effects, you know, a, a, a shot pops up. And they and and a visual effects supervisor might say, "What are we seeing in the background?" And you know the answer is open up the previs of the bird's eye map and find out where the camera is relative to that map, and then you can see where everything is relative to everything else and answer those kinds of questions. And so it provided sort of a master guide. Um, most previs is sort of classic, you know, like let's shoot what the movie's going to look like, but our our most crucial previs, uh, previs was um, what were these maps, so that we, so that before we even started shooting a frame of film, what was virtual could be understood every day on the set at every, any given minute in time, all the way through post. Was there any talks with um, you know Tom Hanks has done so many great war films. Some of you already mentioned his involvement with Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan. Was there any talk about either paying homage or trying to make this completely different than some of his other work? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I used to I, I used to get asked questions like that um, or have conversations like that back when I was a cinematographer. I I you know get on a film and the, everyone would start saying, "What's the look going to be?" And um, I think sometimes there's, I think sometimes there's a little too much pressure put on, quote unquote, the look, because um, the screenplay uh, sort of answers all those questions for you. Sure, you have to have a vision, you have ideas. There's, you know, you you, you put all this stuff in the soup, right? You, it's the cloudy North Atlantic, so it's cold and gray, and it's got to feel authentic because we want to put the people right in the middle of this we want to put people right in the middle of this uh, battle and this situation like they've been dropped off on a destroyer and they're disoriented and they're catching up as they go and you know so you have these sort of general broad strokes ideas 
and then you say, what does that translate to? If that's what the story is and that's what the movie needs to be, what do you do with the camera? Well, in our case, we handheld it so that we could give people a sort of a sense of being there, being present. We didn't want the camera to be too polished. Um, you know, there's no, you know, there's no, you know, and as far as the visual effects go, we wanted to make sure that all, you know, in visual effects, the camera can do anything. It can fly across the bridge and up through a window and around. But if, but if you want to create an authentic experience for the audience, to my mind, I wanted everything to feel as though it was really shot on the open sea. And if that's the case, and you say, oh, okay, if that's what it's got to look like, then our visual effects cameras have to appear as if they're on other ships. Uh, photographing our ship as if we were out on the water rolling camera and some poor cameraman was in storm gear, you know, standing on the bridge of a ship sailing next to our ship and holding on for dear life and dealing with water spray on the lens and and the difficulty of keeping the uh, the, the destroyer framed in the in the camera, you know, through the eyepiece. And so you say, okay, well, if that's if that's the ethic here, if that's the approach. We want to maintain authenticity, authenticity, then how does that translate to visual effects? Well, it means we've got to find a way in the digital world where everything is possible and everything can be perfect of, of sort of introducing chaos and a sense of open ocean photography. So, you know, the, in other words, the, what you want it to be answers those questions. And because Greyhound was different than Band of Brothers, it was telling a different kind of story uh, in different places, uh, which would need to be shot in different ways um, than something like Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan would be shot, then it's inherently going to have its own, you know, character. Do you have any just advice for someone who maybe is looking to follow a path similar to your own, maybe specifically about when you, you know, I think I, I would assume you found the Faulkner story, you were looking for something in the public domain, possibly, um, but someone who is going to take a big chance on something like that or any advice how they can really best show their skills in the way that you did with that film? Yeah, um, it was Two Soldiers wasn't. I had to uh, negotiate a, um, an option with the Faulkner State um, to make that film. It wasn't in the public domain. But, you know, there are issues like that. You know, if you get bogged down too much in the legality of an adaptation, you can sort of spend a lot of time um, wrangling things instead of making films, right? So that's an issue. That's a, you know, a long, a long, longer conversation. Um, but as far as getting started, um, I would say, you know, especially in today's world, you know, everyone's heard the phrase content is king. Um, the, the quickest and best way to make yourself Here's what I would say. You have to make yourself valuable to someone else. There's a misconception, I think, in people, you know, film students and, and young filmmakers, that if you work hard and if you're good at something, you know, things will happen for you. And the sad fact is that's not always necessarily true. There's a lot of very talented people out there. We know this about musicians and artists amazing musicians and artists in the world who don't end up selling, you know, millions of records. So what is it then that, um, 
distinguishes someone who can make a living and find a, a real place in the business, the film industry, and make a productive living at it versus someone who's who's incredibly talented, uh, you know, maybe struggling to find a way in. And the answer, I think, especially these days, lies in um, making yourself valuable. I mean, after all, if you have something someone wants, um, they'll come get it. That's the way that's the way the world works. And the answer is um, be your own person, find your own voice and create your own material. Um, even if it's even if it's something you have to develop, have to develop over time, it doesn't come to you naturally. I think the best move is to embrace fully the idea that that to succeed, you have to you have to tell stories or bring other stories to life in such a way that um, you have something unique of value that nobody else has. A lot of young people spend too much time trying to prove to the world they can do what everyone else is doing. You know, who, who in film school hasn't tried to imitate shots from great directors or wanted to write a, a screenplay that's kind of like, you know, this writer. Um, this is what we do when we first start out. We're trying to trying to bump ourselves up against the people's work we admire. But at the end of the day, when you really grow up, you end up learning that it's about finding what's unique about you and the way you do things and see things and the way, and the stories that touch you personally and the way you express those stories that's going to give you what you need to be valuable. And then you go out and you sell it. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.